beginning of a 13-week study about one of the main purposes of our life, which is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, as it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, which we get to do today, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that Jesus has commanded us, knowing he is with us forever. So that's what this class is all about. Um, we want to equip you, want to encourage you, want to exhort you to disciple others, to obey God's call for you. So our primary text over the next 13 weeks will be, can you guess? Evangelism, Evangelism will be the text. It'll be the Bible. Bring your Bible, please. Um, yeah, bring your Bible to class. Uh, if you want to, if you have it now, please take it out. We'll, I'll need people to read um, parts here and there. But it will be the Bible because, as it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's quite an amazing thing. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. We want to be complete, equipped for every good work. So we want to equip you here. And we'll have excerpts from other books, but it will mostly be the word of God uh, in this class. So before we look at the lessons we'll be covering, I just want to make an important point of clarification. This course is not designed for experts or for professional evangelists. This course is designed for brothers and sisters like us uh, who want to learn how to better tell others about the Savior who came to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. So this course is intended to be put into practice. Um, we're here to learn to tell the story of the gospel. We're not here to convert anybody. Don't put that weight on you. It's too much. Just be ready to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so here's an easy question, though, just to get us started, get us riled up. Why, why is it intended that we put this into practice, that we evangelize? Why? Very simple question. <laughs> mm-hmm. And why, why is it important to you guys that you put it into practice, evangelism? Because God uses us, and he uses us in a way that he draws the sinners towards him. Yeah. And he draws us that we might share our testimony, and they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, God uses us to do it. Like, we get to participate. And, uh... I would say, uh, add to that one. Really practical level, mm -hmm. like just to think always, like none of us would know what we know apart from someone having taken the time to tell us, yeah, or to bring us to church or to show us the scriptures. Yeah, can you imagine not knowing? Have this treasure of information of all the universe and the galaxy if somebody didn't tell you? That's quite a thing. That's quite a loss. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other part of it. It's like, 
it's important because I want to obey. <laughs> I want to do what he's called me to do. So because of that, because we're supposed to obey, and because to not hear it is, would be such a loss, you just have to remember that we don't want to attend this class lightly. If you're like me, you need to be reminded of the sobering reality that we are talking about something that isn't trivial, that's not some sort of routine tradition for the Christians. Um, evangelism has to do with real people who need a real savior, and they're, they're out there right now. They're, they're waiting for us. God's waiting for us. There's some of us, some of them come to our church on Sunday. Some of them might be here today. Um, and this class, we're talking about their life and death. We're talking about hell. We're talking about heaven. And uh, we're talking about people being saved from the fury of God's wrath through the person and work of the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. So the truth, this is the truth, and the truth is not, as the world has it, light and flowing with the wind like a feather. The truth is very heavy, and it's very solid. It's not uh, simple. But for most of us, if we're honest, evangelism is intimidating. And I believe, however, that God, he'll give us the abundance of grace to do so. So in today's class, I just want to do three things. First is the overview. Just want to look at the different classes and what we'll be looking at coming up. Hopefully get some people stirred up, invite some more people. And uh, secondly, which will be the main portion, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation and look at the gospel through it, look at God's purpose through his word. Most of our time will be in Genesis. We'll fly through the rest of it. So if we get to the end of Genesis, you're like, how are we going to do this? No, we'll fly through it, and then we'll read some excerpts together from Revelation, which is always a blessing to do together. And then thirdly, we'll just look at a couple of things to look forward to in the other classes, like some specific implications about evangelism to look at in the next coming classes. Okay, if you have your handout, here's the overview, as you can see in front of you. There's 13 classes. Today is God's purpose. It's basically the gospel and the word and a class overview. The second class, the second week, will be God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, so distinguishing kind of our roles in this and how they differ. The third will be just a solid definition of the gospel, taking time to really look at it, maybe if there's anything we've missed or if anybody is being introduced to it for the first time. The fourth week will be a personal testimony, like you were talking about, Russ. I know you're good at that. Um, how we use our personal testimony, what happened to us. It's, it's an amazing thing to use. It's a huge gift from God with getting, I just witnessed it the other night. A friend of mine just used it, and the guy was like standing there like, wow. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. He gives us so much. Uh, the fifth week, so we've got the personal testimony. The fifth week is the corporate witness. It's, how we work together as a church to evangelize. The sixth week is how to disciple others in evangelism. So discipling, obeying his call on that. The seventh week is how to deal with rejection, how to follow up, how to deal with the fear of man. Eighth week is answering uh, objections to the gospel. So you may know how to follow up, but are you able to... It'll get into some of the more difficult questions and some of the more helpful answers. The ninth week, being intentional and strategic in evangelism. And I put there GC mindset. It's just having a great commission mindset. I know for a long time as a Christian, I wasn't even, <laughs> I don't know why, but I wasn't even thinking about the great commission. I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about 
my relationship with God. I wasn't thinking about other people's relationships with God at all. But it helps you to be more intentional all the time and always be ready. Like, I need to tell that person. Chris, tell, tell us again what uh, you mean by Great Commission. The Great Commission is what I read earlier. Uh, what Jesus says before he leaves at the end of Matthew is that all scripture, or sorry, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that um, God has commanded, and Jesus will be with us to the end of the age. It's his call for us. Tenth week uh, through the thirteenth week are how-dos. So tenth week, how do I share the gospel with family and coworkers? None of us can really escape that. (laughs) That'll be a tough one for all of us. It'll be quite a challenge. Eleventh, uh, how do I share the gospel with Catholics? Twelfth, how do I share the gospel with Jews? And the thirteenth week, how do I share the gospel with Muslims? I'm pretty excited about those last three. I don't know a lot about that stuff. Sheltered life. But it'll, it'll be exciting. Okay. So let's step into the second big section today. Have your Bibles ready. Let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1. We'll be flipping through... Okay, so Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you need a, do you need a Bible, sir? Yeah, there's a ton. And are they in the back still? Oh, they're out there. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So unfortunately, right off the bat, there are some preachers out there who have this view that uh, one day God became lonely So he created man, so he would have someone to love. The sweet, sweet story for man, where creation and love is all about us and God is in the background of our lives. And I think that's one of the biggest problems why we don't evangelize is because we view it that way. But looking at why he created, one of the best questions to ask is, who is God? Not why did he create, but take a second to be like, don't worry about that. Let's look at God here. Who is he? And uh, before we go through, when you think of the Bible and you think just who is God? Who does he reveal himself to be through the Bible um, that would maybe pertain to why he created? What are some of his characteristics? Yeah, just what are some characteristics of God? That could help us kind of figure out, like, let's not focus on the why. Let's focus on who he is. Relation to creation. Huh? Relation to creation. Sure. Well, loving is what? Oh, okay. Yeah. He's good. He's good. That's, yeah. Any other characteristics of God you want to throw out? <laughs> There's like discussion. Just throw them out. That's all right. Creator. <laughs> yeah, he's the creator. That's probably a good characteristic. What's that? Yeah, creator. Yeah. And out of nothing. That's like the one thing I can't ever do. Yeah, capital C. Capital C creator. Out of nothing. And, uh, so he's good, he's creator. And one important thing to remember about him too is that 
And this, it's tough because we're thinking before us. It's like, what was he like? Well, I guess he was like everything he said. He was loving and peaceful and stuff. But something to remember is that he's triune. So it's God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are three distinct divine persons who eternally exist as one God. And regardless of how much it makes our kind of finite human brains wrinkle, it's the truth. And one part of that is that God being triune highlights the fact that he was loving before he created us. So it's not like, you know, like there is love going on. The father was eternally loving the son. The son was loving the spirit and back and forth. They had their own perfect current of love going on. And they had forever dwelt, forever dwelt uh, in this perfect relationship of love and glory. Things were fine. <laughs> like the reason it's important to discuss it is we just need to realize that when God created the universe and the world and the people who live in it, us, he didn't do it because he needed anything. Um, God was not lonely or bored. He always has been and always will be perfect and complete in who he is on his own. So rather, God created out of love. He didn't you know, create love. He created out of it um, and out of a desire to share his glory. The most loving thing God could do is share himself you know, he's there, he's like, this is perfect, let's expand, you know? <laughs> you know, why not? You know, he's perfect. And that's the reason the Bible says that God created all things to display his glory in full measure and allow us to share in his love along with other beings. That's from Isaiah 43, 7, which says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Okay, let's get to some readers. So look at me with Genesis 1.26. Could somebody read Genesis 1.26? With a little bit of volume. Yeah, dominion. Yes. And then could somebody read Genesis 2, 7 through 9? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, so in these verses, we see that God created people in his own image. This means that, in a sense, God made us to be like him. God has made us to reflect his character, to rule his creation as his stewards, not as, you know, as his stewards, and to have a relationship with him. And things... That wasn't an abstract situation. Um, we see in Adam and Eve's relationship with God that there were blessings, but there were also boundaries. Um, looking at the blessing, could somebody read Genesis two sixteen through 17? Yeah, so the first thing to notice is 
the freedom that God gives to Adam and Eve. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's all yours. Like, I made it for you. Enjoy it. Feast upon it. Eat from those trees. Every bite, remember that I gave it to you to enjoy. And God made the world good, and he made it for us to delight in. And that gives God glory. That's hugely important um, when considering God's grace. Because... There is sin and evil in this world, and we're noticing it a lot right now, just with the situation. There's sin and there's evil in this world, yes, but (laughs) there's all of this other stuff. There's everything else in the world that's good. And I think we can get focused too much. There's all this other stuff um, that brings God glory when we do it. He enjoys for us to enjoy what he's made. Just like if I... Just like uh, when I get to write a song for this and we all sing it together. Oh, of course I love it. It's a little different because we're singing it for God, but of course I love it. To be like, oh, you enjoy it, it's good. If you enjoy it, maybe you don't. (laughs) But the enjoyment, though, as we know, however, must be guarded by God's truth. God gave a restriction with a command and a consequence. In verse 17, he says... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God is holy, holy, holy. If man were to rebel against him, God would have to judge him. And in Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's another part of it. So you can imagine that. No fear, no jealousy. No haunting memories or calloused hearts or regret or blame or shame. They knew nothing but life and love and joy and freedom and God's perfect holiness. They knew all the other trees in the garden. (laughs) It's really good fruit in that garden. And they were suitable by God to dwell with them in some capacity, which is a huge deal. And that was going to grow and become even better. We were at the start and it was going to get really, really good. Um... And that's what we're created to know. We're created to have this increasing knowledge and relationship with God that's unhindered. But things did not remain this way, however. Uh, Could somebody read Genesis 3, 1 through 6? And four through six. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Okay, new character steps on to the Eden scene. A liar, a tempter, a deceiver. Ugh. Uh, the Bible tells us his name is Satan. Um, I've heard uh, in the early text, in the ancient text, he's referred to as the Satan. Because Satan's kind of this overall term. He is the Satan in the original text. So what's he doing here? 
He tempts Eve. He tells her, God's holding out on you. You want real freedom? As if, you know, all the other trees. You want real freedom, real happiness, real excitement? Trust me, take a bite. God's way is not best. Things will be better if you just indulge your own desires. So it's the same old song. Eve listened, so did Adam. And, you know, I... I mean, I hate Satan. Some of you might know this about me. I really don't like him. I kind of project all my hate on Satan. Um, But this is some smooth work. Uh, God bestows his rule graciously on man, and Satan comes in and just tweaks the truth just a tiny, just a little bit. And uh, God, so he's already bestowed some of his rule. And Satan saying, well, maybe he wants you to make your own call in the garden. I mean, he's bestowed his rule upon you, so rule. Um, even if it's against what he said, <laughs> which is the problem. That's the reality. Every time we are tempted by Satan, that is the reality. The reality is that we can look back to Adam and Eve and know that they ate what God told them not to eat. <laughs> and we have to remember that. There's these times when people send, they're like, I don't even know what happened. It's like, Did you eat what you were not supposed to eat? Yeah, 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 you did. They rejected God, they rebelled against the Lord, and they followed their own way. That's every time we sin, happens. Uh, The motto of the world is kind of there. It's the kind of make your own way. So. You know, we're always trying to justify sin. Yeah, yeah. We're, it's, it's practicing Satan's way. Trying to justify it. Was he right? Can we trust this guy? Was Satan right? Did he? Did things get better? No, they did not get better. Uh, if somebody wants to turn to Genesis three seven, uh, just like God promised, they died. Sin entered in, and every aspect of their world was crushed. Can somebody read Genesis three seven? Yes, here we go. I I like to call this man's first scientific act. (laughs) They took God's materials and they used uh, those materials to medicate their shame. Sin destroyed their understanding of who they were. And once they were free, now they're filled with shame and fear and guilt. So what do they do? They patch themselves up with fig leaves. Anything they could do to take away the pain. It's the same thing that we do in the world today with the reasoning as well. Sin has confused us, and now we scurry about with fig leaves. They look like cars in sinful relationships, bombastic opinions, accomplishments, portfolios, anything to numb the pain. But sin's destruction did not stop there. Uh, If we look at 3, 8 through 11, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? These are some of the saddest verses in the Bible. God and man used to dwell together. No longer. Now man hides from God out of fear. 
But here we get something very important. It's the first question in the Bible, which is oftentimes the first thing that kind of pushes forward when you're evangelizing. It's that first question. And it's a great question. Where are you? And so God became the first missionary. He came into the garden seeking the lost. He wasn't confused by their hiding. He was saddened by the purpose behind their hiding. He wanted a confession. He wanted them to come out and say, I did it. I sinned against you. I didn't trust you. Instead, they hid. And that's what we've been doing ever since. We're hiding. We make up excuses. We develop philosophies. We conjure up false religions. We do whatever we must to explain him away, explain him out of our way of what we want to do. But God's response remains the same. Where are you? This question has been haunting man in between every line of history ever since, echoing through the sands of time, pulsating in God's eternal power and divine nature that Romans 1 talks about. Man continues to shove it down, but the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, right? So where are you? Where are you? Good question. On behalf of the Lord, we come and we ask people to be honest about where they are with God. But we'll, uh, we'll look at that more in the coming classes. All right, moving on. Somebody could go to Genesis 3.12. Notice that sin also destroys Adam and Eve's relationship with another. Somebody could read that, please. Genesis 3.12. Yikes. <laughs> so what has happened to their perfect relationship? It was perfect, by the way. It really was. Uh, now it's filled with resentment and blame and bitterness. Adam blames, he blames Eve and God. <laughs> Twofer there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is what sinful man does, though. Sin hates to be in the light, and it will do whatever it can to keep from being exposed, especially by blaming others. It's happened so much. It's disgusting. <laughs> it really is. I see it so often, especially in myself. So what should God have done right here? That's a question for all of you. What do you think he should have done? What do you think would have been the fairest thing for God to do at this moment? Toast him? Toast him. <laughs> yeah, or one of those instant ones, make it quicker. Yeah. Yeah, if you think about God's nature. So we started this class by saying, very beginning. Mm -hmm. And if his nature is naturally opposed to sin, mm -hmm. in other words, like it can't coexist with him, then it seems like the most natural thing, mm -hmm. the only thing he could do, is to expel them from his presence. Yeah. Or, I mean, like he couldn't do anything else because he's perfect. Yeah, it's almost like mathematical, like an equation, like that happened? Oh, they must go. They must. There's no way. But something else happened. It's crazy. Um, he should crush them. He should judge them. He should cast them forever under his wrath into hell. And that's what he would do if it was fair, if that equation had worked out the way that it should have. But instead, he promised to crush another, to promised to judge another, and he promised to pour out his wrath on another. 
So if we look at Genesis 3, 14 through 19, quickly, it's just God responds to man's rebellion by proclaiming a threefold curse on Satan, the woman, and man. To Satan, you're on your belly now, you're cursed. To the woman, pain and birth and struggle in your role as a woman. And to the man, pain in your work. Thorns and thistles will come up from the ground. And just to throw it in, to all humans, we all die now. Uh, as, as, as it should be. But notice, however, that God doesn't curse. He doesn't just curse them. He has this way of having curses and promises. So there's a promise. And this promise will guide the course of history and the hope of the world forever. So a lot of us know, uh, a lot of us know John 3.16. Important verse to know. Even if you're like, oh, that's the obvious verse. Of course I know it. Um, you, should, you should know that first. But I just want you to add to your repertoire Genesis 3.15. John 3.16, also always think of Genesis 3.15. Because that's where it starts, okay? When he curses the serpent, God says in Genesis 3.15, if somebody could read it, please. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, and for not smart people like me, uh, enmity is the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So God doesn't choose to wipe out Satan here. He does something far more wise for his own glory, something far more brutal towards Satan, and something far more loving for his future children, for all of us. Um, if, he's, if he's looking at Satan, he's thinking, at least this is kind of what I was thinking, like, you want to steal souls, Satan. You want, you want to steal people and have them worship and follow your way? I'm going to let you do that, Satan. But I'm going to bring my son against you. That's right. You know who my son is. Because Satan knew who his son was. He will come in the form of a man and he will still defeat you. And everyone will know that I am the Lord. He has let that doom linger over Satan's existence ever since. It's truly a defeat. Um, I love it because I hate Satan. (laughs) I love it. Uh, We see it. When Jesus resists the temptation in the Gospels, and we see it uh, using the word of God, he resists those temptations. And then in Revelation, he defeats him in the end, again, opening his mouth, word of God coming out. So God promises to send a deliverer, one who will stand up to the enemy and defeat him. But in the process, he will himself be wounded. And just a little nerdy thing for us today, this is called Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, if you want to take that away with you. The Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel proclamation. Huge deal. So after this, God promised them, or he, he gave them an illustration. So he gave them the promise and then immediately gave them a real-life illustration. If somebody wants to read a 3.21, Genesis 3.21. Yeah, so God promises this, and then he makes them garments of skin using an innocent animal's blood. It's, their blood is shed, and now God strips off Adam and Eve's fig leaves, 
of self-righteousness, and he clothes them with the blameless garments of one who died in their place. It's a media illustration. That is a picture of what God does for those who trust in Christ. So in Genesis 3.24, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. He puts a cherubim, this is important, he puts a cherubim outside the garden with a flaming sword, whether it's separate or he's holding it, either is cool. And then (laughs) he keeps them from the tree of life. And then the waiting began. So the rest of the Old Testament is about this anticipation. A deliverer is coming who will defeat Satan, clothe them with innocence, and restore them to God. So in Genesis 5, he gives a genealogy up to a man named Noah, whose name means rest. Oh, so the reader wonders, okay, will Noah be the one who will give rest to the sin-stained world? But not ultimately. But we get another picture of Christ, another illustration. God promised a flood judgment was coming, and whoever entered into the ark in faith passed through the judgment and was brought into a new world. The gospel, if you could think about it as a timeline, we're looking back here in Genesis and the gospel's here when Jesus comes. The gospel's echoing backwards through time. It's beautiful. And following the flood, man's rebellion continued and they built a tower where they sought to exalt themselves to the heavens for their own glory. And what did God do? He judged them and sent them out confused without direction. But in the midst of that darkness, God called out a man named Abraham through whom he made the nation of Israel. He promised Abraham that he will be blessed and that through his descendants, all of the world will be blessed. So now you're reading, you're like, okay. So from this, we come to understand that the seed of the woman, the promised one, will be a descendant of Abraham. Okay, it's starting to make sense, starting to unfold. So jumping forward a lot, (laughs) Israel moved to Egypt because of a famine from which God delivered them. They became enslaved under a wicked Pharaoh from which uh, God delivers them through a man named Moses, and Aaron helped out a lot. Uh, One of the final acts of deliverance came when God, again, another illustration, called the nation to shed the blood of an innocent lamb and smear it on their door frames as a testimony of their faith and God's promise to pass over them and not judgment. So those who did so, they lived, and those who didn't lost their firstborn children and judgment. They did not pass through the judgment. And following this, God miraculously led them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And there God gave his law to his people so they would know who he is and how he requires them to live. But because God knew that they wouldn't keep this law perfectly, and none of us have, he provided a sacrificial system through which a priest offered up an innocent lamb as an act of faith, again, that God would pass over their sins. You're starting to see this year after year. Animals and blood, offerings and prayers. These are mere shadows pointing to an ultimate sacrifice who would come. It's all through the Bible. So along the way, Israel, as we know, often rebelled and God dealt with them for their sins. But he never forgot or forsook them. Instead, He made them more promises and provided more mercy to them, always keeping a remnant, even when he judged them, even when he killed them. He always kept a remnant. 
He kept his promise. And in the days of Samuel, as we go further downhill, they asked for a king so they would be like the rest of the nations. That's 1 Samuel 8. And after God, uh, he gave them this wicked king. God promised to raise up a king after his own heart. We immediately think of David. But he promised that this king would be a king from David's line who would have a house, a throne, and a kingdom that would never end. That's 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. The promise continues. God also gave promises to his people that this eternal king would be born of a virgin. That's in Isaiah 7, 14. He'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Would work miracles, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. And that ultimately he would be a suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53. So God gave all these things to stir faith in his people so they would trust him to bring the seed of woman who would crush the serpent's head, all the way from Genesis 3.15. So there, the Old Testament ends, and we don't see the king. It just, it's over. <laughs> it's like, no. So question for the group. Um, why do you think the Old Testament is so important to the gospel story if we don't even get to see Jesus in the Old Testament? The promise of God? Okay. Yes. What about that promise? Was How's that promise play out through the story as we were just looking at? Mm-hmm. And man had a struggle, mm-hmm. which he deserved to. And uh, then as we go through the Old Testament, we see all the struggles that man is going through, but we always have the promise yeah. of Christ. It's like this constant checkpoint. Every, every time man gets bad, he's like, that's whatever. The promise continues. I will keep my promise. And... Yeah. God. And as, as God blesses them, they rebel. Mm-hmm. And so there's consequences to it. Yeah. And the Old Testament is just kind of, uh, as you go through those Old Testament periods, you just see man continually rebel. Mm-hmm. And the only hope for man is the future coming of Jesus Yeah. You can't, it's so helpful in evangelism too because you're often going to be met with that question of like this is the god who kills people right exactly. it's like this is what's so wrong about man i was talking to a guy the other day he's like i believe what i believe about jesus not like you but i believe what i believe and i'm not hurting anybody well what's the problem it's like, let me introduce you to the Old Testament. <laughs> let me introduce you to the way man is. Like I tried to tell him, you're that way, and so is everybody else. And look at the result. It's not very good, is it? Wars, abortion, terrible things happening. All because we believe what we think is good. And people tend to say, well, why did God do that? Well, God didn't do that. Man did that. Man did that. It was man's denial 
Yeah. Man continues to live in sin, then he faces the punishment or he faces the consequences of those sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Instead of blaming God, man needs to face the sin. <laughs> right. Not God. Mm-hmm. I love the, the, where God says, my ways are not your ways. Yeah. You know, I, I always keep that, try to keep that in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it shows us God's character. It shows us He keeps His promises. And they're crucial to the gospel. It shows us that God, uh, it shows us the God that Jesus would submit to. It shows us the human line God would preserve, that He would come from. It shows us the promises He would fulfill. It shows previews of how amazing Christ's character will be, because you see it. Even in these sinful men, this it comes out a little bit. You see a little bit of Christ's character through these people. And it gives illustrations of what he must do and why it will be the greatest act of love for all time. And one more thing I'll throw in. I think this is a cool thing, too. It can be easy to just kind of be like, Old Testament's whatever. We'll talk about Genesis, but the rest of it, whatever. But it's, it's really important in evangelism. Um, if you look at uh, Stephen, you have to turn there. In Acts 7, he doesn't just say, Jesus is my Lord. He rece- before he dies, he recites everything he can about the entire history of the gospel. He's like, let me tell you the story. So here's the deal. <laughs> he tells the whole story. And in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, they do the same thing um, when they're witnessing to a city. They tell the whole story from Egypt onward. Knowing the whole story of God's gospel it had value to our Christian forefathers, and it should for us. So it's a good thing. All right. Old Testament, done. <laughs> Moving on into the New Testament, after roughly 400 years of silence. I love that. Uh, God gave his son Jesus to be born to the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem. Thousands of years of promises were being fulfilled, they came true. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He performed mighty miracles. He proclaimed God's kingdom. That was the good news, that God's kingdom is here. And hope for those who would repent and believe in him. But rather than embrace Jesus as their Lord, (laughs) it's finally happening. But rather than embrace him, the religious leaders of the day ordered that he be put to death. And he was. He was forsaken betrayed, slandered, beaten, he was crucified. And at that moment, all of history came into focus. We had the gospel echoing backwards. We have it echoing forwards to us right now. This is it. This is the moment. Um, It all comes together. And Jesus was nailed to a tree to receive the curse and the shame and the judgment that we sinful humans deserved. Remember how God, he cursed the ground after Adam's fall and how thorns and thistles came up from the ground? On the cross that day, Jesus wore a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold or silver or jewels. Rather, our king wore our curse upon his head. God's wrath and fury for sin was poured out upon the sinless son of God Before he cried, 
or before he died, he cried out, it is finished. And it was. He had come to die for sinners and satisfy God's wrath, and he did. But remember what happened? Do you remember what happened in the temple when Jesus died? The top to the bottom. The curtain tore in two. Yes, in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, that curtain was created, holy holies, to keep sinful man from approaching the holy God. Do you know what was embroidered on that curtain? Oh, a trick! A tricky Russ. <laughs> it's from Exodus twenty-six thirty-one. The cherubim. The cherubim. Oh, Davy's got it. The pastor's got it. So the cherubim, just like outside of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim and a sword outside the Garden of Eden. And through Christ's death, we now have access into the place where God is. It's an amazing picture. I find it interesting that the priest that entered the Holy Land had to have his leg tied to the world. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because if he went in there and he committed a sin, mm-hmm. he was killed. Right. And they had to pull his body. Yep, it's like in the narrative when Aaron's sons, the first time, it's like, well, we got to fix that now. That's not good. Man, we can't do anything right. Which is the same thing that electricians in the Navy do. Hmm. When they're working on high voltage equipment, they have a rope that they tie around somebody, mm-hmm. ink them out. Right, because if you touch them, you know, that's where you break. Yeah. <laughs> too powerful. It's too powerful. So that curtain, and from what I've heard, that curtain was thick uh, and it tore, and people saw it. Uh, because of it, we can know our Creator again. It takes us all the way back, you know, with Garden. We can know our Creator again. And every single person. I was reading this, and I just, like, every single person in this world knows that something's wrong. There's this lingering veil between them and what is truly good and lasting, whatever it is they want. And I don't, I, honestly, I don't think a lot of people know what they really want. There's this veil, and Jesus is the way through that veil. And it leads to God. It leads to all things that are good. It leads to all the other trees in the garden. I'm just thinking about what you said in the, all the Old Testament big leaves try to cover shame mm-hmm. um, a tower that was going to somehow reach to the heavens um, there was one more thing I was thinking of that you said thorns and thistles the, the desire for a worldly king oh yeah and how all those things are man's attempt to try to solve either their own problems or the problems of the world yep. and Christ is fulfilling all these as the only sacrifice that covers in the ultimate sense mm-hmm. um, and then he is, he is God come down from the heavens to dwell among us. So, mm-hmm. And then with the king, he is, he is the, he's the king over all kings. Yeah. King. Yes. And it's, it's, they just kept trying to do the garden again. Like, Adam and Eve tried. It didn't work out. We're going to try again, though. Maybe this time. Maybe this time it'll work. <laughs> come on. Uh, and after Jesus died, they placed him in a grave and... For the three days he lay dead until that faithful morning when God rolled back the stone and the world saw that Jesus had risen from the dead and he is alive today. The Son of God defeated sin, he defeated Satan, and he defeated death. And after his resurrection, he appeared for 40 days to many people and he told his disciples that he was going away. (laughs) But while he was gone, he left them with the greatest of tasks as we read before the Great Commission 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and obey what I've commanded you. After these words, which are they're paralleled in Acts 1.8, we talked about that in Sunday school before, before COVID. That's going to become a term, before COVID. Um, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now intercedes on our behalf. That's where he is now. We've got his story. He's there right now. But Pentecost, just 10 days later, Pentecost comes after his ascension. And then God sends his helper. He sends the Holy Spirit down to his disciples. And following this, they took the gospel to the ends of the earth, calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. And just to note, we're all temples now. You know, the curtain's been torn and now we are the temples. He's within us. And they told the world that Jesus was a king who was soon coming to judge his enemies, but that he was also a gracious king who delighted in extending mercy, as he did in the garden, or God did. They were faithful to the gospel message, and because of it, they endured persecution, trial, and suffering, and they had the joy of seeing countless people trust in Christ. If you want to turn your Bibles to Revelation, we could read a bunch of that together. This is what's been going on for the past 2,000 years of history. Followers of Christ, like us, have been laying down their lives to proclaim the good news that God saves sinners who trust in Christ and call him their Lord. That's important. Because we have the parable of the sower. People believe and then they stop. It's important you trust and you call him your Lord and you follow him for the rest of your life. And this is why we're here this morning, because we believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and that the only hope for the world is for the world to believe in him. So while we proclaim the gospel, we keep in view the fact that God's mercy does not last forever. There's restriction. There's a curse. There is a day coming when Jesus will return and we'll call all people to account. If somebody wants to turn to Revelation 19. Let's look briefly. We have some bigger sections to read. Could somebody read Revelation 19, 11 through 16? This is mostly just for our, to get us stirred and to think. Jesus is coming to judge the world. Somebody read uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15.
another court was open, which was the court of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus is coming, and a day of judgment is specifically coming. And I'll read uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If somebody could read 22, 1 through 4. Thank you. I know evangelism's hard, but this is what we're looking forward to. Never forget it. We're looking forward to a new and a better Eden, a new heaven and a new earth, a new tree of life, a new river of life, no thorns, no crying, and we're once again face to face with our Creator. All right, so now we've gone through Genesis through Revelation. Just a couple more things, just take a moment. These are just some things to look forward to in the coming classes. Um, There's three things. Firstly, the purpose of history is to bring God glory. And on your handout, um, there's some references if you want to check those out at home. The purpose of history is to bring God glory. So this means that everything we do in life, including evangelism, ultimately is to display to the world that God is worthy of all of our lives. So this should be our primary motivation in proclaiming the gospel. Um, There's a book by John Piper. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in it, he says, missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist 
because worship does not. That means the reason we proclaim the gospel at home or abroad is because people are not rightly worshiping Christ. Whether they know him or not, they should be. They They aren't. And a person's toil is best spent glorifying God and bearing his image correctly. We, want to, we don't want to just tell people, we're giving people a story that gives them a purpose. The purpose that they should be doing. Secondly, God is the evangelist. He delights saving sinners. God is the evangelist. We must remember that God is the one who has compassion on the lost and that he is seeking and he is saving them. We are merely joining him in his great purpose, just like he bestowed at the beginning. He's bestowing more. He's so kind to us. He gives us these wonderful things to do. And our purpose in life, it must be determined by God's purpose. It's the constant struggle. And as we have seen his great love for sinners in our own salvation, we should, of course, greatly desire to seek to see it in others by evangelizing. And thirdly, another thing we'll be looking at in the future things to remember. We've been entrusted, so we've got God, we've got the reason, it's all for God, all for his glory. We've got God as the evangelist. And then thirdly, we have been entrusted with the honor and responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. We're here to tell a story. <laughs> we can do it. We don't have to be you know, pro-evangelists. We just have to tell, tell the story and have faith in that story. I know, that, like, I love, I, I love Jesus, but I do have times where I'm telling the story. I'm like, is this really, this really going to work? I have to believe. It's God's word. It's living. I'm, I'm not the one who determines if the word of God is good enough. I need to say it. And evangelism, it's not an elective for the believer. It is a command. It's a responsibility, but it's also an honor, right? And we have the privileged position of introducing people to the king of kings. Mm-hmm.